Welcome to the Leadership Exposé podcast. This podcast is for purpose-driven leaders at diverse levels and organizations around the world who are seeking to scale and transform their leadership to level up their business and to create an impact in the lives of people all around them. Business and boardroom topics, trends, innovation, transformation, and the intersection with leadership is the focus. We enable success. I'm your host, Stephen Paul. I am excited to host Robert Jordan, CEO of Interim Execs, which matches top executives with companies around the world. Interim Execs has helped fix global giants like Pepsi, Microsoft, UPS, and more by identifying the right leaders to step in during times of trouble or stagnation. Robert is the co-author of a unique leadership book, Right Leader, Right Time, Discover Your Leadership Style for a Winning Career, which was published earlier this year. We'll hear from Robert on how leaders can identify their own leadership styles and determine whether that style is optimized for the benefit of their companies. Robert or Bob, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Stephen. Thanks so much for uh, having me on your show. Love it. I am pleased that you're here with me today, and leadership is a very close topic to my heart, and uh, I'm keen to hear about you and and the book. But let's, uh, you know, just before the podcast, we were talking about where we're based, and, uh, you know, I'm based here in the UK, I'm from Toronto, but uh, tell us for the audience purposes, where, where, you, where are you based? Sweet home, Chicago, Chicago in the US. The Windy City, yeah? The Windy City, yes. <laughs> No one's ever sure if that's referring to cold winds or politicians, too much hot air. <laughs> but either way, it's, yeah, it's the Windy City. Absolutely. Wonderful. Okay, uh, Bob, we want to hear about you. Uh, tell us about your, you know, your personal journey and your professional journey, where those intersections happened. Um, and then we'll talk about where your focus is on currently. Thanks, Stephen. I am your classic entrepreneur, which is to say I've launched or helped start a number of businesses. Um, some utterly flamed out, disastrous. Luckily, along the way, I've been in three IPOs, initial public offerings, and, and have had um, a number of companies where uh, they were early stage and sold to strategic buyers for very high multiples. So, there was some recovery for the the sin of of loving loving to start things. Um, so the the notable thing I had I had started I started the first magazine in the world that covered online and then internet called Online Access and I published that for a number of years and ended up selling it to a big publisher and that wasn't an event like oh gee I'm going to go retire mm. I'm not wired for retirement which is its own subject, but was kind of looking around for, for what I was going to do with my life. And, you know, if you've heard that Zen expression, when mm -hmm. the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yeah. Um, I happened to run into an acquaintance and he had this very weird job title. He was an interim CEO. Um, the concept of interim management, as you know, has been around the UK for many years. I think originally it was uh, the Netherlands and then uh, Germany and France. Uh, the U.S. was probably the last place 
for it to hit. So he had a weird job title and and he handed me a business card and the card said CEO of Yahoo. <laughs> and this was at the rise of internet 1.0, the internet bubble. And being in the industry, having covered online for many years, uh, we knew Yahoo and these other directories were all racing to go public um, faster than each other. And there were just ridiculously positive things happening. In the case of Yahoo, the Japanese um, investor Masayoshi Son had put in 100 million before it went public. And so it was just these mind-blowing things going on. There was no revenue yeah. at Yahoo, not, not earnings, no mm -hmm. revenue. And it was going public. And so my acquaintance, his name is Philip Monago, this very much impressed me. And I pretty much instantly said, you're my mentor. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided on the spot, this is what I was going to do. We were in Silicon Valley at a conference. When he told me this, I came home to Chicago and I bought two domain names, interimceo.com and interimcfo.com. Hmm. And I hung out a shingle and I started doing gigs. And so I did that mostly with early stage tech companies. And when social networks came around, um, there was one called MySpace and then of course, Facebook yeah. and LinkedIn. I thought, you know, I wonder how many people in the world are like me or Stephen, now I know me and you yeah. who take on project-based roles. And so we launched what became interim execs. That was around uh, 15, 16 years ago. And so it, it's the work at interim execs, which is what then fueled the book, which is what we're talking about. Yeah, amazing. And um, just to wrap up the, uh, the 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 journey side of things as well, you were mentioning, you know, your entrepreneur from the get go. And I was just hearing as you were describing how you um, started your magazine, your publishing, you sold it, started your your company, Interim Execs. Um, and on just on that side of things, have you seen changes in that space? Because um, you've grown the company, obviously, and there's been an audience around that space. Have you changes, seen changes? You mean in terms of interim execs and yeah, that is a yeah, field? Yeah, yeah. Well, that is in our business is global, but it is majority US. Mm. Um, it has grown massively uh, in the past decade. When I started, people would look at me like I was crazy. Um, and CEOs in particular, the, it re my role was always interim CEO. So any other CEO, this was massively threatening to them. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but it has grown, it's grown in Europe, as you know. Um, I don't know that the European model, I find, I don't find it particularly appealing. Mm. Because in the European market, I think it has become somewhat commoditized. True. Um, and that's not the way it is in the US market. I, I know it's in many other countries and I don't know if they have, but but in the European market, there's more a sense of of that it's just published and and um, you know, published rates every day. And in the US it's not like that at all. And I suspect because the US is a huge yeah so diverse as an economy yeah. that um, 
it it's much harder to compartmentalize yeah which is good from our point of view because it's much more exciting and interesting yeah to yeah. be a part of it yeah I was, uh, yeah, no, ab absolutely. I was, I was trying to draw in that intersex of how you've grown the company, you know, and based on different models, different, different, um, different segments and so forth. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, it has a touch on, on leadership as well. And we'll come to your book now. So, um, Keen to hear about your book. Um, you know, in the in, I was reading uh, parts of it, and in the preface, you you speak about your daughter Sophie, the operation she had to undergo, and about Doctor Marletta Reynolds, whom you Marletta described Reynolds, as the yeah. right as the right leader had shown up at the right time. Um, tell us a little bit more about all of that where did it all begin where was your thirst to actually write a book and tell us the tell us the story well that particular story i mean it, it i mean in in many ways it so doesn't relate to business my my wife and i just um unexpectedly um our our daughter was born a micro preemie one pound five ounces mm -hmm. and you know for any parent who is listening to that you know, uh, you you live through the terror of, of of a baby who is not doing well. Well, try try one at one pound. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it, it just a, it was a life and death experience. Uh, early on, our daughter Sophie, she was two weeks old. There, there's a particular valve in the heart that, for full grown uh, babies, when they're born, it naturally closes off. And which is what it's supposed to do. Mm. And then blood flows the way it should for someone um, who's oxygenating their blood well. Well, for preemies and micro preemies, some cases this valve doesn't close. So she had to go through open heart surgery, two weeks old. And um, you have to imagine, you know, a, a little uh, a little baby, you know, as I described in the book, looked like a plucked chicken. Yeah. Um, and the level of skill it requires of a surgeon and the surgical team. And so my wife and I were out of our minds because we know she had to go into open heart surgery and, and you just, how, you know, how can it end well? Um, but I still remember this because it, it's so unique yeah. for me in my life, which is that uh, Marlita Reynolds, Dr. Reynolds walked into this neonatal intensive care unit. <laughs> Excuse me, she walked in she was across the room and there, she was trailed by a lot of people, mm. her team. And something happened. She she wasn't even up to us. She hadn't even said anything. But like I, my body calmed down. It wasn't a conscious reaction. I'm, I'm still not sure how it happened. And what I wrote in the book is I really don't remember what she said. Mm. I just knew the sense of calm had come over me. And I just, this thought I hope I don't get too emotional with this, but this thought just came over me, which is we're in good hands. Yeah. We're, we're in the right hands. And I don't know what the outcome is going to be, mm. but it was amazing. Mm. And thank God everything turned out okay. Yeah. Um, the surgery was successful, um, but it has always stayed with me. And, and so it was interesting writing the book. The book took about five, six years to write. And at some point, you know, I went to my daughter, to Sophie, who's now uh, uh, healthy, 
25 year old mm -hmm. and um, said, do you mind if I write about you? Preface, it's just a page. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, cool, fine with her. And I thought I should go ask Marlita. And she is now the head of, uh, uh, I, I forget her exact title, but she, she's a very high level at Children's Hospital in uh, Chicago. And she was very surprised and sent her a copy of it, said, do you mind? And, and she said, no, her attitude was kind of like, you know, in some ways not a big deal. I mean, she knew it was a big deal, but it's interesting in that line of work, you know, most of us in our work, Stephen, it's not life and death, True. right? Yeah. You're, you're just, you're doing things in business and you hope you'll succeed. And if you don't, well, you don't. Mm. In, in, you know, uh, in Marlena's line of work, it's life or death every day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it worked out great. Thank yeah. God. Yeah, no, wonderful. And and thank you very much for sharing that story. It's it is it is truly and I'm sure I can just relate to how you how you experienced that and that positiveness and and this this then comes back into, you know, your... actually, can I flip something around on you? Go for it. This is totally off of that subject. But I've had the good fortune to, to um, have uh, written three books. Mm -hmm. um, the first one, I'm not the named author. I was, I was the editor for one of my partners, um, a famous negotiation coach. Okay. Name is Jim Camp, and so I had a publishing bent, and he had this brilliant set of rules, and he was kind of a secret weapon for CEOs around the world who wanted to negotiate better. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, we got published by a big publisher, Random House, and the book is called Start with No. Well, Jim was first my coach for a number of years, teaching me to be a better negotiator. Mm. And um, and one of the first things that happened was that I met him. And within a year or two, here my wife and I are in an EQ, neonatal intensive care unit, yeah. and it's chaos. And the parents, you feel powerless. You've got this tiny little baby. You don't know what's happening. They tell you you're going to hit all these life-threatening problems, and maybe you'll get out of there, you know, with your baby alive. Yeah. And um, it's really frustrating. It can be unsettling. And I didn't understand why this open-heart surgery couldn't be done in the hospital mm. where Sophie was. They had to transport her to a different hospital. And I was so emotional, and I could not kind of control myself. And so I called Jim, this incredible negotiation coach, and he coached me through negotiation, how to have a conversation with a doctor, the head surgeon, without losing it. Yeah. And specifically because they had said, well, you put this little baby in the ambulance, they could die on the way over to the other hospital. It's true. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they had a surgical theater right there at the NICU, 10 feet away. Well, why wouldn't you operate on the baby there? Yeah. And so Jim coached me and that story went into the first book into start with no. Right. Okay. Of what he told me to ask. It was very big around asking great questions. Um, yeah. Sorry, this is off subject. No, it's it not. It's it not. Was, it's not. It's really incredible. And so fast forward, Jim's book, Jim Camp Start With No, it's been out for 20 years now. 
And finally, Random House decided to do the audible version. And I said, you know, he was my dear partner. He passed away. Mm -hmm. I said, I want to record it. And I'm letting you know up front, I want to put a riff in there that's not in the original book. Yeah. But because I'm the anonymous example of the father and the NICU trying to control his emotions, yeah. you know, to convince this doctor. Yeah. Operate on the baby here. Don't transport the kid. So when I got to that point in the audible narration, I put something in there. And it was great because Random House said, okay, it can stay in. Yeah. But I, you know, Bob, when you describe, you know, that 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 first book, uh, you know, you talk about negotiation and that situation where you called on, um, you know, to get that coaching advice. Uh, we, these are all elements that you are exhibiting as a leader internally, even maybe even without maybe realizing it. And the the, the, the elements of the style, you know, you were you were just you know you were experiencing, or you were you were open to just recognizing your strengths and weaknesses. I mean, isn't that part of being a leader and demonstrating certain styles? And you know, I, I, you know, because I, in in my line of work, leadership is a very close <laughs> is a very close topic to my heart, and 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 how I exhibit that with with my team or teams that I'm interacting with. Or even in my personal life as well. I mean, like we—it's not just all about business leadership. So tell tell us a little bit more. You've you, you've mentioned about the negotiation side of things that um, you know that 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 came to light, but also these different styles that you brought into the mix. Obviously, from personal experience as well. Yes. Uh, so what what. The, the reason we glommed on to this idea of leadership style, one really bad thing and one good thing. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that was not so good is that because we run a company called Interim Execs, over the years, we've been approached by over 7,000 executives from 50 countries. And we developed ranking and scoring and screening. And you could get pretty good at observation, you know, when your, your, your sample set goes into the thousands. And the vast majority of executives showing up were having careers we would describe as okay, mm. but not exceptional. And there was this subset of the top three, four, five percent who were just crushing it, remarkable careers. And there was this vast difference among the top leaders. We saw these four distinct leadership styles. Among the majority, the way we could put it is to say they were trying to be all things to all people. Mm. They were not differentiated enough. And none of us are all things to all people. And so that really was the thing that compelled us to do the book, which was, can we put out a message to people earlier in their careers mm. in terms of this is a minefield you know, we understand early in your career, you can feel desperate. You need the paycheck. Mm. I'll do anything. That can be the case when you're 22 or 24 or 26. But mm. over time, successful people tend to differentiate themselves. And highly successful, remarkable leaders do that um, uh, in a very concentrated way. Or in the book, as we would say, they continue to double down. Yeah, yeah. 
So I'm, I'm a subscriber to that. But do you do you uh, do you feel that leaders, whether they're early in their career or established in their career, you know, you mentioned about you know the different styles, such as being an artist, builder, strategist, fixer. Is it one or the other, or a combination of 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 of, of the different styles that that you see leaders having? Every leader is a combination of the four. Mm -hmm. And as you said, fixer, artist, builder, strategist, F-A-B-S, or in the book shorthand, we, we would refer to it as FABS. Mm -hmm. FABS leadership styles. And then there's a free leadership assessment coming out called FABS leadership assessment. So what we are finding out is that exceptional leaders tend to have a dominant style or a dominant and a secondary. Um, but everyone is a combination of the four to infinite variation. If, if you want a metaphor, you know, DNA, mm -hmm. we are all just made up of four different nucleotides. Mm. Everything, you know, your Aunt Mabel, the frog, the duck, us, four, four different kinds of nucleotides, but to infinite variation as repeated, you know, over a billion times over. And that's what makes for all flora and fauna. And so that's what we would say of leadership yeah. is great leaders, of course, bring all four styles to bear. It's just that the more successful they become, they have this unique kind of signature in terms of how they lead, which we call style, process approach system style yeah. that comes to be highly differentiated. We're now seeing this in front of us, for example, because Elon Musk, is the quintessential artist leader in the world today. Yeah. His, his innovative ability, if you think of Tesla, mm -hmm. Tesla is not just a great uh, you know, EV, electric vehicle. It has remade the entire global auto industry because everyone is now moving towards it. Yeah. SpaceX, it's, it's the premier example of privatization of of um, space travel, which before everyone had just thought, well, it's gonna be NASA or the European agency. And of course it has to be a government. Well, no, it doesn't have to be a government. Yeah. Um, incredibly innovative. Well, but on the other hand, look at what everyone is saying about the first week or two at Twitter. Mm. Yeah. Twitter, if you really think it's a distressed entity, which I'm not sure that it is or was, but the playbook he has played out over the past two weeks is from the point of view of most fixer leaders, one of the most boneheaded examples yeah. of how not to fix. In his case, I think Elon is still going to be successful. I'm a huge fan of his, but he only gets to do that because of two things. Number one, because he's Elon, and number two, because he bought it, and so it's now his game. Ultimately, given what Twitter is, that second answer is not sufficient. But for the moment, it is because it's his money, his debt. So, I think Does that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 it's 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 mysterious as well. I mean, like so. And and my next question is around. You know, you've got you've got a great title, by the way, right leader, right time. So. Our editor will be very happy to hear you say that. <laughs> we had no idea what the title of it was going to be. 
It was like how agony come, for years. How did that come about? How did that come about? Oh my God, it was just agony. And, and I was like, well, maybe it's just called fixer, artist, builder, strategist. And everyone was like, no. And the editor, we had a great editor and she really got to know us. And when you reread, you know, 65,000 words over and over. And at one point, you know, Olivia and, and I, my co-author and I are just yet another day of agony. And she was like, this is so obvious. It's right leader, right time. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Couldn't see it. Too close to it. Yeah. Too close. Yeah. I I I I feel um, you know in my in my line of work, and I've worked for large large organizations, corporates, uh, both in a permanent or full time capacity, but also in an interim capacity. Now, a good thing in in an interim capacity, um, in a C suite role, uh, you're removed from the politics, or at least you you're you're there to do a piece of work and to actually tell it as it is, but in a very diplomatic way and get results, good, tangible, positive outcomes and rally everybody together. Now, of course you do the same thing in a in a permanent capacity, but you know, you have to navigate through all the political structures and really you know, dig deep into it. So there are pressures on both sides. Um, and, and my question is, how, in your view, how, how how do you feel leaders need to respond to those internal pressures, regardless of the type of role that they are in? Is it by applying these different styles at different times and consciously doing that or being aware of themselves? Tell us a little bit more about your your view and how how the application of what you've described as your leadership styles, is more real for some of these for, for some of these leaders. We use a phrase in the book, high, <clears throat> excuse me, highest and best use. Hmm. Highest and best use. And we think that leaders who are exceptional, um, part of it is is there has to be self-awareness. There hmm. has to be an awareness. Um, we, we love the line. You know, if you ever saw any Clint Eastwood movies, um, Clint cool Eastwood Luke. created a character yeah. called Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry, um, yeah. yeah. The, these classic old movies. You couldn't make one like it now. It's so politically incorrect. But he he had a great line in one of the Dirty Harry movies where he said, a man's got to know his limitations. Mm. And and great leaders know their limitations. Um, it and And so... Over time, um, exceptional leaders tend to reject more of mm. what is not for their highest and best use. Very intentionally rejecting, very intentionally putting themselves in positions where they just know they're going to be mm. more successful because you can't be all things to all people. Mm. It's easy to say that. It's very hard to do when you're young in your career. Mm. Really hard to do. Part of it is it's you may not know it's less differentiated. Again, part of it is you need the paycheck or this desperation of wanting to be like wanting to be successful. But there is a path that people tend to map out for themselves as time goes on. And so it is first for you to put yourself in those positions where the game is stacked in your favor, if you will. And 
it is then also that, you know, there's more and more awareness of we are stakeholders. For example, Twitter has many stakeholders. Sure. But if, for example, you are a shareholder, an investor in a company, well, mm. you care very much about the leadership of that business. Mm. And, you know, if you can have influence over that, you definitely want the right leader at the right time. Mm. Mm. We interviewed, a. if I could go into something, Stephen, we, we interviewed a lot of um, leaders for the book. Mm -hmm. And we had a set format. We didn't want to start with the premise, the hypothesis about fixer artist, builder, strategist. Mm. we're exploring each person's style leadership style when we got to the point in each interview of saying this is what the premise of the book is mm. and then there were a couple of questions does this resonate with you and if so what are you what what is your reaction what are you well one of the leaders who we interviewed um he said as soon as he heard it he said you know what this makes me think of is I was an investor in a company once and it was when it was going badly, we had the greatest CEO in there. He said, you know, but once all the problems were solved, he wasn't so good. And I thought, well, now there's an interesting example of, in that case, Fixer. And one of the things we're very big on in the book is when fixers fix something, they have to move on. Because True. they are drawn yeah. to running into the burning building. Yeah. And one of the other leaders we interviewed, he has a great quote. He said, if I put a fixer into one of my businesses and it's not broken, he will break it just so he can fix it. Mm. Yeah. It, it's, it's such an important aspect when you look at those different leadership styles. And do you, do you, do you think that that, resonates with let's say executive teams and boards similar type of styles um you know i sit on boards you know we have board members who are a group of people not necessarily a team you've got executives who are an executive team in my view these leadership styles apply to an individual and to board and to executive teams as well but just keen to hear from you bob as to if you see any nuances or differences well i would Stephen, i related to uh, another question we sometimes get asked which is what does somebody do with this mm. what do you as a, a a person in an organization or a leader or what 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 do you what do you what does your team do with this and and i think the first thing is have the conversation because if you and I, for example, are on a team together, whether it's the operational team, the C-suite or the board, I believe the more that I know who you are and what you are really great at, mm. the better we're gonna perform. And the same for me, the more you know authentically what things I am great at and what things really are not best to throw over to me, right? that we're all gonna perform better if we individually are recognizing. It's one of the psychologists we interviewed, he said, you have to be spiky. Mm. What he meant was if you were looking at a chart or a graph of all the skills, abilities, qualities needed for a team, no one has them all, no one. But you have to be spiky. You have to show up on that graph mm. as having some abilities that are going to be accretive to the team. And mine are gonna be different from yours. 
and for the other person. And the more that we know that, we're absolutely going to know how we can perform better as a team. Yeah. So the first point is have the conversation. Yeah. And 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 have the conversation regardless of whether it is a difficult conversation, but have it in a constructive way. I think yeah. that's yeah, and that's that that's where that self-awareness that you were describing earlier and that the level of maturity into the conversation and to the leader comes into play as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Stephen, I I I'm from Chicago and I had the privilege years ago to watch Michael Jordan play Chicago Bulls. And I'm not a huge sports guy, but this was Michael Jordan, right? And the Bulls, I mean, you know, how many championships? And I had this feeling or this thought when I watched them play, which was, you know, you could blindfold these guys and they'd play at just about the same level. There was a sense of team when, when team developed, when it wasn't just Michael on his own, there was a sense of team there that was so cohesive mm. and so confident of each other and their role on the court that it was, it just seemed to go beyond the five senses. Mm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. And, and that's what I think, um, that the teams that are well functioning are able to do yeah and it comes back to the leader as well or a group of leaders or a team of leaders and that alignment is such an important aspect right but knowing thyself <laughs> and being vulnerable as well yeah yeah i think that's that's a critical piece um bob i'm keen to hear if we take a step back look at the macro type of things here so you know we have these economic shocks at the moment we have our economic situation recession we talk about recession there is there isn't in some industries in some sectors there is a pandemic a pandemic we've got different cycles i'm trying to bring that intersection with leaders companies um, what what are you experiencing? What are you hearing from leaders as to what their challenges and how they're navigating through that? Um, it's a great question, and leaders are called on more than they used to be for a level of resilience um, that prior generations just did not experience. Prior generations of leaders and companies simply did not face the level of volatility uh, and uncertainty as exists in the world today. Um, we could go on for so many reasons that this is the case. Um, you know, it was, it, it was kind of a tragic milestone. You know, in the United States, a health panel just put out an announcement that they say every individual under the age of 65 should be screened for anxiety. Mm. And it's, it's just, I, I read that and it was just like, oh, really? Really? Come <laughs> on. I mean, that's just. And so we as leaders are, are challenged. We're challenged in our humanity to be uh, more resilient and more present. Um, and I think we see great examples of that in the world. I think there's there's a more highly evolved sense of leadership now than than used to be. Yeah. 
Bob, I'm, I'm keen to hear about you as a leader. You're a leader in your own right. Um, share with us one thing that's your secret formula to your success. Uh, well, clearly over time, I think I have come much more to understand my highest and best use. Mm. And that is both a good thing and a humbling thing in, in not trying to be all things to all people. Mm. And that's a great, um, it's like a Zen arriving and not arriving, you know, to arrive at a point to understand all of the things in which I don't want to be in control and that I can recognize the genius of others around me far better than me. And that it's not a source of um, shame or um, lack of confidence, but simply realizing we're all going to perform better. And, and also coming to some understanding that the things that I'm really, really great at mm -hmm. double down. Yeah. Double down and, and stay on those things. And that has taken a long time um, to get to that point. You know, you know, the, the world um, devalues age. We, we celebritize youth, right? I mean, this is just a given of the way the world is. But what I've discovered over a span of, of not just aging, but of continuing to lead in various endeavors is, oh, there actually are some advantages to experience, mm. to, to having gone through things. Not that it means that I'm, I'm more of jack of all trades, but the opposite in a way is to mm. understand, to have the confidence, um, um, to understanding my, my makeup is enough as it is, and that I've got genius in particular ways, and that's what I should be doing. That's where I'm getting the greatest joy. Yeah. Well, we, we spoke about your book, um, you know, the different elements of, of the book, and you touched on quite a few things about leadership. Uh, what are the important topics or trends on your mind these days that you feel impact people, business, leaders, boards, and their journey, you know, and what they need to really focus on? Well, I think there is much more of a emphasis now on, on a totality of stakeholders that did not exist in organizations before. Um, I think that is a sea change. You know, there were the days of Milton Friedman, which is the role of the corporation is to produce a profit. Full stop. Mm. And in one sense, in a capitalist, you know, market-driven economy, that's it. That is the purpose of the corporation. Yeah. There is now a much broader sense that um, there is a responsibility on the part of, of organizations that does go beyond a profit, and I buy that. There's also a counter-movement, at least in the U.S., a very famous investor who wanted to start a fund and it was to back organizations and other funds where, where it was just the avowed, we're out to make a profit and the government and society is going to take care of the rest, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of any environmental impacts. But generally speaking, I think there is a much bigger arc among organizations to understand that they have responsibility in the world. Um, and if you buy that, then that flows into a lot of things. 
that, for example, a generation ago, it was news, but not exactly remarkable if you fired half of your workforce in a day without notice. Mm -hmm. Now, in the book, we wrote about a famous guy named Chainsaw Al, mm -hmm. Al Dunlap, who did that. Um, that was his recipe for turnaround and didn't end well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but there's much more of a sense of accountability, I think, now. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what 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 is a day in the life of uh, Bob look like these days, morning to evening? The perfected day. The perfected day is in the morning. I go to the gym. Um, sound mind and a sound body. Got to do some cardio. Got to do some strength. Yoga is great. Um, uh, I'm fortunate enough that we live in Chicago, and my office is yeah. is uh, under a mile, so I walk to the office get in, start handling crises. Actually not, there really are no <laughs> crises at work. They're just all good and interesting um, projects to go work on. So the typical weekday, I'm just working. Now on a weekend, it's a very different thing because my spare time for the past 30 years, I've painted um, fine art from the painting. Um, I also have wife and two daughters, so there's a lot of family stuff and two dogs. Um, uh, family stuff that goes on, but I, I, I get a lot of joy. I, I am a personification of the artist leader, and mm -hmm. I don't say that mm -hmm. as, as, with pride in a way, because artist leaders to excess, it's a peril. It, mm -hmm. the, it is perilous because that creative impulse doesn't necessarily make for riches, or a powerful career. Mm -hmm. Um. Artist tends to come with a lot of failure uh, around creation. Now the market tends to be more forgiving of that. Yeah. But anyway, so in my spare time, I, I, I get to, um, among other things, uh, paint, and and that's a necessary thing for me. Amazing. Well, we're coming to a close very shortly. Any any closing messages or a challenge to other leaders, executives, boards, organizations, people? That you want well, to you, you know, I, I, I've, thank you, Stephen. I, I have the, I've always had this, since we wrote the book, I've had this fervent desire for people younger in their careers to give them a message. And I realized that it applies to all of us, but I'm going to, I'll just put it this way. The world seeks to commoditize you and me. It just does. It's, it's kind of a relentless thing within you know free markets and you have to resist that you have to resist that kind of with every fiber in your being and the way you do that is by continually going towards this thing which is the highest and best use and everyone has it and that's the beauty of the journey we quoted a um, a minister and he had among many brilliant expressions he said you have a song to sing, but it doesn't mean you don't have to learn how to sing it. Yeah, sure. And so it, it behooves all, all of us to do that on the journey. Amazing. Words of wisdom and challenge from Bob. Thank you very much, uh, Bob, for being with us today and sharing your journey, but also about this wonderful book, Right Leader, Right Time. 
uh, for, our, for our audience, uh, take a read of this and uh, listen to the different leadership styles and how you can navigate your own style. Um, thank you very much, uh, Bob, for being with us today and sharing your journey. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Wonderful. Okay, folks, thank you very much for listening in and stay tuned for our next episode from a chief innovation officer and how they are developing a new agile based innovation framework. We'll hear more about that. Stay tuned. Hey, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. You're now seeing this part of the video also because you consume some of my content, insights and teachings. Maybe you've been to my LinkedIn page or website or seen other social media ads or listened to my podcast. I'm Stephen Paul, a business and transformational executive coach, strategic advisor, leader, and board member. I've been in diverse roles, corporate executive, entrepreneur, and worked with businesses and firms of all sizes, built and launched businesses, created high impact boards, and so forth in four continents. I get it. I've been there, done that, but what is different is I bring a unique perspective and a playbook. I've helped 100 plus business leaders just like you to scale and align their leadership top teams, the board and overall business for growth. Leaders like Ivana from medium sized company in the EU who grew 150% and expanded globally in under five months. After she started to work with me over facilitated sessions in an initial three days, I helped fine-tune their strategy and align their leadership team and board to be a cohesive driving force to achieve their dreams and outcomes. I want to teach you the same thing and more on how to scale and align your leadership team and board so you can increase your business growth and value. Get clarity on what is the next right strategy for you. There are multiple ways we can work with you. Number one, click the link for a free non-obligatory 60-minute initial strategic session. Let's get a feel for your dreams, your vision, your challenges, and let me convert that into a route map for you where we can co-develop and co-pilot. Number two, enroll in an innovative and intuitive digital online course that I have curated, created to help you transform. It's called Unshakable Resilience. It is the ultimate program for individuals and business leaders like you who want to be equipped at a personal and professional level to respond to any form of challenges or in crisis situations and take on opportunities with grit, resilience, and build a mindset of success. In essence, you want to be unshakable thrive in crisis, take on opportunities in the face of adversity, and build a success mindset. So click the link below to learn more on how I can personally help you individually and your firm to scale and align your leadership team and business and pivot in a transformational way. And for you to experience this, whatever the challenge you're facing, get in touch with me. Let's discuss and I will share my insight rapidly to enable your transformation. Click the links below.